We're going to dive in this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible uh, or if you want to bring this up on your, on your phone to follow along, you can. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, this is a, a passage that uh, is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible to help us understand um, how to conduct ourselves in the context of family. You know, we've said the last couple of weeks that if you're not married, you're single, or maybe you were married once upon a time but not married now, you know, why should you even care about a series on marriage and family? And I would reiterate that the reason you should care is, number one, it's in the Bible. Uh, Number two, it's also everything we say this morning about the nature of the marriage relationship, the dynamics of how to make that relationship healthy and strong apply also. in similar degree to just uh, friendships, relationships in general. And so there's a great deal that you can apply to your circumstances um, of just loving other people, caring for other people, developing friendships and so on. Um, And in particular, uh, if you're married, if you're a parent, um, these are things that I think periodically we all just need to be reminded of and reflect on and repent around and to bring our thinking in line with God's word. So in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to start reading at verse 18. And this is what we read. This is the word of God. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, would you teach us now as we reflect on some of these words in particular and some of these principles, uh, Father, in, in general, would you help us as a church get better uh, in our marriages and better in our relationships at loving the way we are loved? Would you teach us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began to look at this passage a couple weeks ago. It's a passage that talks all about family and family relationships. And chiefly, in the section that we read, it it talks uh, about husbands and wives and their relationship. A few weeks ago, uh, we saw that God is the one who instituted marriage. 
Marriage is not an institution that was somehow concocted by human beings. Uh, human beings didn't come up with the idea, hey, we, we ought to marry. No, it's an institution actually designed by God and put in place before sin even entered the world. Uh, it's an institution with a God-given purpose. And its purpose isn't just to make you happy or satisfied or to fix your problem of loneliness, although it can address those things. That's not really the purpose of marriage. The broader purpose of marriage is to display and to explain and to even dramatize the gospel, the good news of who and what Jesus Christ is and what he did. It shows forth the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. We talked a lot about that idea a couple of weeks ago, and I said that Jesus has married a very, very difficult bride, a bride that's not so loving and not so beautiful, not so perfect, uh, not so faithful, and that bride, of course, is you and me. We're the bride, the difficult bride. And uh, Jesus, remarkably, is very patient and very loving, very caring, very kind, very good, very forgiving, very gentle with this difficult bride that he has married. Even though this bride, us, we are utterly undeserving of all of those things. That's the backdrop of everything we say this morning. Uh, the reason that Jesus is that way is because of something called a covenant, a covenant. Jesus has entered into a covenant with his bride, with the church, with you. A covenant is all about commitment. And I know as soon as you bring that word up, uh, the moment uh, you go down that path, uh, someone is sitting there thinking, wow, okay, I have a struggling marriage. Kind of the last thing I, I want to hear about is commitment. Don't talk to me about commitment. Don't talk to me about duty or talk to me about obligation because you don't know my spouse and you don't have any idea how awful he or she is or how much stuff I have to put up with. And you would be right if you're thinking that. I, I don't know. And the fact is, sometimes our spouses do so break this covenant, the covenant of marriage, that marriages end in things like divorce. And those things not only happen, but they are even sometimes, because of the degree to which the covenant of marriage is broken, sometimes those things are even okay. And I just want to say this morning, I'm not talking about situations like that. I'm not talking about situations of extreme neglect or abandonment or abuse or infidelity or just the routine breaking of the basic marriage vows. I'm not talking about those kinds of things this morning. I'm talking about the more mainstream, normal kinds of marriage relationships. And in that context, I am talking about this thing of commitment, our personal duty. Our personal obligation, which is the last thing people want to hear when it comes to a struggling marriage. I get that. It's difficult to hear. And yet, friends, I want you to hear me out on this, too, because it is important that we all understand that real joy in relationships, especially marriage, but in any kind of relationship, real joy, real freedom, real fulfillment, real love in our relationships actually depends to a very great extent on this idea of commitment. 
being committed to one another and to finding solutions to the problems that quite honestly we create together. Our culture tells us that when things get difficult in our marriages, well, it's over, right? It's just over. Move on. Find someone else. Maybe you'll be more lucky next time around. Because things like joy and happiness, thinks our culture, things like personal fulfillment and love and acceptance are all better, are all found without commitments, without things like marriage vows, without barriers of any kind to my personal freedom or my personal satisfaction. And that's why more and more young people today are choosing to live together before they get married. They don't want to make binding commitments before they determine whether they like living together with another person. And so they move in with one another and they share themselves and they share their expenses and they share life together. And I would say pretending, pretending in those contexts that, that they are committed. But the fact of the matter is, these cohabitating relationships produce a great deal of anxiety. I shared with you a couple weeks ago the Pew Research findings uh, on these kinds of relationships. This was a study that was done and published in November of 2019, uh, so very recently. And what that study found was that trust levels in cohabitant relationships are significant lower, lo significantly lower than in marriage relationships. What is more, 38% of cohabitant relationships were entered into just for convenience, said the people surveyed, just for convenience. We'll just do this because it's, it's more convenient. And half, get this statistic, half of cohabitating relationships in the U.S. end within a year. Only 10% last more than five years. You can see the angst that that would create. And did you know that 94% of females in a live-in relationship enter into that relationship with the hopes that that will lead to marriage? 94%. That's a staggering statistic, is it not? And I just made that statistic up. <laughs> I did. I made it up. It's not true, but uh, we, I don't know how many percent. But, but here's the thing. It sounds reasonable to me, and that is what I would be thinking. If I'm a woman entering into a cohabitating relationship, I would, I would be hoping that this bum is going to commit to me. That's what I would be thinking. Now, I submit to you that what all of us are looking for is, is acceptance you know, being accepted for who we are, being loved. And we're looking for a deep and lasting companionship that goes beyond just today or tomorrow or the next day. The Bible says that those things are best found when a relationship is rooted and grounded in commitment. There's an author, Jeff White. He's actually the associate professor of counseling at Colorado Christian University. He's written a number of books and I think he very wisely uh, writes these words. He says, the ability to make promises is a uniquely human activity. Think about it. Many people view the marriage covenant as constricting, but the knot which you tie in marriage is not a noose. Actually, when you make a promise, you are in a state where you are most free and most human. How so? Well, animals can't make promises. Everything they do occurs by instinct. If their hormones tell them to mate, they mate. If their hormones tell them to migrate, they migrate. 
Humans, however, are moral agents. And he's right. We are different than all of the other animals. We do not have to follow our feelings and emotions, our instincts. We have the ability to stand against them. The person who always runs away from pain and follows their feelings is no different than the rest of the animal kingdom. They are enslaved by their emotions. The person who sticks by a promise, however, even when it hurts, demonstrates that they have the capacity for faithfulness. Making a pledge of commitment is an act of moral courage. Such a person is truly free, he writes. Couldn't agree more. Friends, that is what biblical love is all about. Biblical love is covenantal. It's committed love. When the Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, well, that's all about commitment. That's actually, too, covenantal language. The Bible defines marriage as a covenant relationship. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. When people entered into covenant relationships in the ancient Near East, always there were certain things that were a part of that covenant. For example, there were stipulations in the covenant. Uh, the, the, the parties making a covenant would spell out what's expected of each one. This is what will be expected of me. This is what will be expected of you. Spelled out in stipulations. There were vows that were publicly made, vows of public accountability. Declarations saying, I will do this, and if I fail to keep my word, may the curses of the covenant be upon my head. The making of a covenant, as you can see, was serious business. And that is what we're saying today, marriage. Marriage is serious Business, it's not a casual agreement based on my feelings or my emotions for you today. It's a declaration of my intention, both now and into the future. It's a promise that looks forward, always looking forward. This is what I will do for you, not just today, but tomorrow. This is who I will be for you, not just today, but tomorrow. On your wedding day, of course you love one another. Who doesn't know that, right? You're saying all these dumb things and doing all these dumb things in order to be married. And you declare that love to everybody who's gathered. But Christian marriage vows, understand, do much more than that. They declare your intentions far into the future. I will love you. I will honor you. I will cherish you. I will be for, there for you 10, 15, 20, 50, so on number of years till death do us part. Those are the vows that you take in a Christian marriage. And this is what biblical marriage vows are all about. Covenantal commitment, public declarations of future intentions to be faithful. Do you feel the weight do you feel the weight of that commitment? You should. It's serious business. Let me tell you something else, though. This kind of covenantal commitment in marriage is actually what allows for real joy and real freedom and real love and real acceptance to be developed over time. Because you see, relationship actually, deep relationship is always built, whether it's a friendship or marriage, deep relationship is always built on promises spoken and sometimes unspoken. 
A commitment to love, honor, and cherish in marriage is certainly not a commitment based on fluctuating feelings, is it? In marriage, you're not just doing a test run. The fact that marriage is a covenantal commitment tells us, too, that marriage is more about what we do. It's, it's more about our actions than it is about our changing and wavering feelings. Now, that's not to say marriage is a, something you enter into without feelings. That would be silly. But marriage is not something that is based on feelings. I love what C.S. Lewis observes. He says, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Isn't that true? Oh, I'm in love with you. I'm going to promise to be there for you. I want to make promises to you. He says, love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. And they are really dumb, stupid vows usually, but they are full of that. He says, the Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love, something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. Not at all, he says. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself compels them to do. And of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I am in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions, he says. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise to never have a headache or always to feel hungry or some other stupid thing. C.S. Lewis is making a really profound observation here. And he is saying that when we talk about biblical love, we really aren't talking about the feelings that often accompany it. We're more talking about actions that will be taken. We're not talking about a love that says, you know, I'm going to constantly be monitoring my feelings. And as long as I feel happy about, you know, my needs being met, important things like that, then I am going to stay with you. I am going to keep my promises to you as long as that's happening. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about biblical covenants like marriage. We're talking about a love that is not self-seeking. The Apostle Paul describes love for us in writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. That he writes about love this way. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. You might add, or its own perspective, Right? It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, writes the Apostle Paul under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit. That's the most beautiful description of love I would submit in all of written history. It's a passage that's read a lot at weddings. And nobody listens to a word of it. <laughs> Did you notice what it said? It said, love does not insist on its own way. Another way of saying that, not as eloquent for sure, is that love gives before it gets. That's biblical love. And somebody might say if they're actually thinking, man, that sounds awful. 
you know, I don't want to be patient with someone who irritates me. Give me a break. I want my own way. And if I don't get it, yeah, I'm going to be irritable and I'm going to be resentful. I don't want to bear all things and endure all things. I want to get all things before I give anything. I want to be made to feel good. Amen. A lot of you are not being honest. You're not being honest. I know you better than that. But you see, covenantal love, biblical love gives and serves and sacrifices because a promise has been made. And I would encourage you to think of it this way, that the feelings that you really want in relationships, in the marriage relationship in particular, they are something more, something deeper, something more costly than the initial feelings that we, that we have of attraction or of romance, which are great feelings. They're great. But, but the feelings that you want in a marriage relationship must go deeper than that. I would say that the only way to get to those deeper feelings, the only way to grow them too, are when you've time and time and time again gone through difficulties and challenges with that friend or in the case of marriage with that spouse. Time and time and time again, you have gone through self-sacrificing situations and come out the other side to be able to see what that produces. Time and time again, you have laid down your life to serve and to sacrifice for this individual that you're loving. That is the radical biblical ethic of love. Simply put, love is always costly. Parents know this. How costly is it, parents, to accept and appreciate your child at 3 a.m. in the morning when they're throwing up in their bed? Or how costly is it to love your adult child who is not following Jesus, who is doing all kinds of sinful, destructive things, not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over. And then they need your help and they want to move back home and they need medical care or they need your financial assistance all at a great personal cost and sacrifice to you. But you do it, don't you? Because you love them. C.S. Lewis writes these words. This is so wise. He says, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state of, quote, being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean that they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, well, then it says what probably never was or ever could be true. It would be highly undesirable, he says, if it were true. Who could bear to live in that excited state for even five years? What would become of your work? I mean, think about it. The days leading up to that time when you're getting married, for example. Work is not on your mind, right? Appetite, he says, is another one. Sleep, all those things kind of fly to the wind, right? Because you're so excited about marrying this person. But of course, he says, ceasing to be, quote, in love does not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. 
reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask for and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other, just as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. They can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allow themselves, be able to, quote, be in love with someone else, be attracted to someone else, you see. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. The quieter love is what enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage runs. And I got to tell you, I think he is exactly right. And I'm an old married man, so I know. (laughs) I think that this is just a great description of what the Bible calls us to in marriage. Again, marriage is a covenantal commitment. It's a declaration of your present and future intention followed up again and again and again and again with actions. It's not a thrill that comes and goes, a feeling you try never to lose, a high that you keep trying to reproduce. Marriage is an action. It's a commitment to your spouse till death do us part. And in the context of that commitment, in the security of that commitment, you move past the thrill, beyond the thrill. You advance to deeper and deeper acceptance and appreciation, and you discover joys that go much deeper and last much longer than the joys of romance or attraction. Now, how do I know this is true? Good question. Consider Jesus for a minute. Think of Jesus' love for his bride. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross. His love for you and me when he was on the cross was not based on any set of feelings. He didn't look down from the cross and say, oh, look at my bride. I mean, she is so good, so righteous, so faithful, so loving, so, so beautiful. She makes me feel so happy. She meets all my needs. So I think I'm going to stay up here on the cross for her. She, she deserves this. Jesus stayed on the cross, friends, because his love for us is covenantal. He had made promises to us, and he was willing to die to keep them. He did not stay up on the cross because we were lovely. He stayed up on the cross to make us lovely. His death was action based on promises. His death was covenantal commitment. And that's the first practical implication of marriage being covenantal. That marriage, that love is more about actions than feelings. Now, I've got 10 of these principles, so that's number one. Here's a second practical implication. And that is that marriage, because of the nature of being covenantal and because we are sinful, will also be confrontational. Amen? Anybody affirm that with me? You see, since it's covenantal, it's going to be confrontational. Why do you enter into a covenant? Well, because you've got two parties that would like to, you know, betray one another, really. They, they want what's best for them, not what's best for the other. Uh, that's part of the brokenness in us. Uh, here, here's an illustration that I've used before. I'm going to use it again because it's so good. Some of you might remember it. Uh, imagine a bridge, an, uh, an old wooden bridge, perhaps in the country. It looks fine. It's beautiful. It was well-made. It's 
But you're looking at it from a distance and cars and trucks and so on cross over that bridge. But get up close to that bridge, get under that bridge, examine that bridge real closely and then have a big Mack truck drive over that bridge. When that truck crosses the bridge, something happens. You feel the bridge vibrate, especially if you're underneath it. You, you hear it shaking and, and creaking and squeaking and so on. You see the weathering of the bridge. You might even see some cracks, you know, in the wood of that bridge. The Mack truck puts stress on the bridge. It exposes the weaknesses of the bridge. And that, my friends, is what marriage does. Here's your romantic quote for the day. You can put this on the refrigerator. Marriage is a Mack truck being driven over the bridge of your life. (laughs) That's what marriage is. And because of that, marriage is always going to expose your defects. It's going to expose your weaknesses. It's going to expose your flaws and your insecurities and your sinful uh, actions and propensities. And understand, that is a really good thing. That is a gift to you from God if you're married. And here's why. Because marriage is a safe place for those things to begin to be dealt with. It's a safe place for you to grow. And marriage is all about your growth. In marriage, you're in a covenant, a covenant that is supposed to be unbreakable, binding. In marriage with someone who has pledged to love you, you can now open up and start to deal with some of your stuff in ways nobody else is willing to deal with you. You can start looking at your defects, your sins, your weaknesses, your addictions, your idols, the things you love more than God, like yourself. I don't know if you've noticed it, but when we read just a moment ago, what what is Jesus doing in his marriage? Did you notice that? It said that he is washing and cleansing his bride in verse 26 and 27 there of Ephesians 5. That's not talking about bubble bath. Because you see, Jesus' bride has open ugly, oozing wounds, rotting flesh, deep scrapes, deep cuts, deep bruises. And so washing and cleansing hurts. Just like dealing with our issues of sin hurts. And that's why marriage is, understand, a redemptive covenant. God is using this institution that he's created to go to work on us and redeem us out of our places of deep, embedded, committed sin. Marriage is a safe place. It's a relationship with promises. It's where we work for each other's benefit. We speak truth to each other, but we do it in love and with lots of grace, or we're supposed to. We forgive one another. We keep moving forward together. We learn how to stop prosecuting each other and promoting ourselves at the other's expense. Again, this is why marriage is a covenant. And this is why a large part of marriage is confrontational. It's meant to be. Jesus' marriage to the church cost him deeply. It's very confrontational. He's always confronting you with your sin. He's always confronting me with mine. He's always doing it in loving, caring, effective kinds of ways. But understand too, Jesus knew what he was entering into when he married this bride, you and me, the church. It meant that he was going to have to sacrifice to save his bride. It meant that he was going to have to get dirty to make her clean. 
It meant that he was going to have to die in order to give her life. He said one time to his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many, a ransom for his church, for his bride. Jesus knew exactly what price he'd have to pay for his bride. And he was willing to pay it because he had made promises. Because he was committed to her being washed, her being made holy, her being made beautiful. Now that is what Christian husbands and wives are supposed to do in their marriages. Is that clear? Apparently not. <laughs> Love their spouse the way Jesus loves them. Love their spouse for their spouse's good. Love their spouse for the sake of their spouse's growth. That means loving them sacrificially, absorbing sometimes, overlooking their sins, sometimes confronting them, yes, but loving them. And when we do that, what we are doing is dramatizing the gospel, the good news of what Jesus does for us, the story of how Jesus loves his bride. You know, God's foundational institution in society is not libraries. It's marriage. It's marriage. It's a dramatization of what love looks like. It's a dramatization of what forgiveness looks like. It's a dramatization of what faithfulness looks like and passion looks like and intimacy looks like, what faithful promise-keeping looks like. That is the main purpose of your marriage and mine. Now understand, while that is the purpose of marriage, it is legitimate to hear all of this and say, well, okay, how do I do that? Because what you're describing sounds like it would be good on paper, but how do I do that? I mean, I get so mad at him. I get so mad at her. I get so disappointed. How, how do I do what you're talking about here? Well, Paul, I would say, gives us a, a very simple answer to that question. Simple meaning easy to understand, not simple meaning to do. But there, there's only one way to do this, this thing of marriage, this thing of healthy you know, deepening relationships for that matter. And this would be very obvious to us if we were reading this, this letter to the Ephesians, uh, to the church, the Christians in Ephesus. If we were reading the letter in Greek, it would be a lot more obvious to us because the grammar of this passage is what actually makes this point. So let me just uh, take a few minutes and explain some grammar. Everybody loves grammar, right? <laughs> grammar lovers, hang with me here. If you've got a Bible open, you can follow this a lot better. Otherwise, this is going to blow by you a little bit. But in verse 21, that verse is often called kind of a bridge verse, a transition verse between two different subjects. From verses 18 to 20, those were the first verses that we read. Paul is talking about being filled with the Spirit of God. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A lot of people identify that as a bridge verse. But then in verse 22, it seems like maybe the topic just changed. Paul just suddenly, you know, kind of did a, a 180 or something. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And it feels like a change here. Suddenly we're now looking at family relationships. And so some say that verse 21 is just a bridge between these two different topics, being filled with the Spirit and family relationships. But to read the passage that way misses something very, very, very important in the grammar. In our English translation, verse 21 sounds like a transition but when you look at the grammar in the Greek language you see that verse 21 is actually part of a really 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 long sentence that starts all the way back at verse 18 
In verse 18, Paul is talking about living life filled with the Spirit. Guess what? That whole idea of living life filled with the Spirit goes all the way through to chapter 6 down to verse 20. It's all being a description of living life filled in the Spirit. He's saying if you are filled with the Spirit, something happens in your heart there in verse 18 and following. There's music in your heart. He uses that analogy. There, there's this new spiritual song. He says, sing and make melody to the Lord with your hearts. He says, too, there's a new attitude about events in your life. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this new approach even to relationships. That's verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what living in the Spirit looks like. And the point is, verse 21 is connected to what it means to be filled in the Spirit. And here's the kicker. Verse 22 is not a separate sentence from verse 21. In the English, it looks that way. But in the Greek, verse 21 and 22 share the same verb. They are part of the same sentence structure. They are part of the development of this central idea of what it looks like to live life filled with the Spirit. Literally translated, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's no period there. And it goes on to say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And what this means is there is no division between the subject. It's all connected to the idea of spirit living. And the point is, spirit-filled living has direct implications on all of our relationships. All of them. Paul is saying, live filled with the Spirit. You'll have music in your heart. You'll have a thankful attitude. You will submit to one another if you're filled with the Spirit. And wives, for you, it looks like submitting to your husband. Husbands, for you, it looks like dying for your wife. Kids, he goes on to say in chapter 6, for you, it looks like obeying your parents. Dads, for you, it looks like not provoking your kids to anger. And he goes on to talk to masters and bond servants, all of the relationships you would have seen in a typical household of that day. Paul makes it very clear that this radical new way of living is not for everyone. It's only for those who have the Spirit of God living in them. So the big point, to love covenantally, you've got to have the Spirit of God operative in your life. In fact, you have to nurture the work of the Spirit in your life. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. Submitting like this, serving your spouse like this, working for his or her good uh, and their holiness, dying for your spouse, it is not possible unless you are filled with the Spirit. Now, I am not saying, of course, that someone who is not a Christian can't have a good marriage. There's something called the, the common grace of God where he gives grace to everyone, even people who don't believe in him, even people who deny him, even people who hate him, thus enabling them to have good, healthy relationships. What I am saying is this, and I think it's what Paul is saying, is here is what marriage is. It displays the gospel, the truth about Jesus. It reflects what God has done for us in his covenant with us, and it can't be done in our own power. It requires the spirit of God to be at work. You know what that means? That means a big, 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 big part of marriage is constantly praying the God help me prayer. Have you ever prayed that in your marriage? God help me. Help me love this man. Help me love this woman. Help me discover my own sin because I'm so riled up right now. All I can see is his or her sin. God help me. God help me. Help your, use your word. Use your spirits. Show me me. 
Get me out of this, you know, where I'm just focused on what I want, focused on my needs, focused on winning this battle that I'm in. And let me die to self because that's what Jesus did for me. Only the Spirit of God can work that way in us. Now, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, that, that means practicing habits like surrender, surrender to God, because you can't surrender to your spouse until you've surrendered to God. I don't ever want to surrender to my spouse. But I can when, when God, uh, when I'm surrendered to God. That, that means daily being filled, daily being empowered. You know, how do I know all this? Well, I could keep preaching and we could go right through chapter six of the book of Ephesians. Because Paul does get to an answer, uh, even a better answer. Of, you know, how do I do all this? Well, he, he eventually in Ephesians chapter six gets to putting on the full armor of God. You know what the full armor of God is? This is so interesting, at least to me. Um, and since I have you here, <laughs> in Ephesians chapter six, you know, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. If you read this whole description of the armor of God, you know what the armor of God is? It's just a fancy flowery way of talking about what we call the ordinary means of grace. That's all it is. So walking in the spirit is walking in the ordinary means of grace. I mean, look at his descriptions here. He, he talks about things like putting on the belt of truth, right? Or the breastplate of righteousness. So you need truth. You need righteousness. How do you get those things? Well, by the spirit of God, applying the gospel truth to my life. By the gospel of peace, he says, he says the shield of faith. You got to have increased faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. That's the word of God. And then in verse 18, he mentions prayer. All of these things are just reflective ways of talking about the ordinary means of grace, using the word of God to transform yourself, letting the spirit transform. If you're not doing that, good luck in your marriage so how do you make use of using the Bible and letting God speak to you and letting the word of God convict you and cause you to repent you got to have practices that enable those kinds of things you got to pray good luck for your marriage if you're not praying for your spouse and for you whoa wouldn't want to be married to you and we can chuckle and I know how many of our marriages are, are we not praying in? How many of us think this is just supposed to work naturally? Wow, good luck. See how that works. So friends, we use the ordinary means of grace. We pray, we read the Bible. You know, we come to worship and we hear the, the pastor go on and on and on and on about marriage. You know, and, and, and it kind of reorients the way we think or the way we approach looking at ourselves, looking at our spouse. This is the ordinary means of grace. We see and believe that God really is at work because people are actually getting baptized. Children are getting baptized. The church is growing. People are coming to faith. In, you know, oh, there's this, yeah, the or, you, know, you understand, the ordinary means of grace is one of those terms that's kind of a misnomer because the ordinary means of grace is all about doing the unordinary, which is real spiritual work in the heart of a human being. But the tools that God has given us, are not, they're not spectacular. It's not like I got to hear the voice of God. No, I can open my Bible and I can hear the voice of God. So, I, you know, I'm done. I mean, I don't have any more material. But, but, the, but the thing is, I, what I'm trying to say is, you know, get about doing the things that cause you to grow. And that's not sexy stuff. That's Bible reading and prayer and going to church and, 
getting serious about growing your faith. And when you do that, you're going to be a heck of a lot better spouse. And when you start praying about your marriage, God's going to reveal you to you. Your marriage is going to get better. That's how this stuff works. Pray with me. Father, uh, this whole marriage thing that we're talking about, it, it's serious stuff because of what it's supposed to dramatize. And what it dramatizes, God, is a love, your love that is so deep and so sacrificial and so soul satisfying that sometimes when we look at our marriages, we think, wow, my, my, I'm not sure my marriage is dramatizing any of that really well, but God help us. God, help us. Help us be husbands and wives, and for that matter, friends to one another that reflect the truth about the way you love us. Deliver us from marriages, God, that are stuck. Deliver us from marriages that feel defeated. God, they're not defeated, not if you are in us. And take us to better places, places of reflecting the fruits of the Spirit to our husband to our wife, because those are the fruits that, that you produce in us, God. Let us get better in our marriages and healthier in our families. May this be a place, God, that honors you and takes seriously the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace that you've given us. Help us to seize those things, take hold of those things, and practice those things with diligence. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.